Yeah, yeah, and all your all your uh, fans can steal it from me. We uh, <laughs> yeah, so we I started looking at it like from the investment side of things. Our the biggest. Welcome to Building Wealth Through Real Estate. If you invest or desire to invest in real estate, then this show is exactly what you need. And here's why. We all know that the number one thing that you should be doing as an investor is networking. Your network equals your net worth. But how can you use this to your advantage? Well, firstly, take notes. Listen to what the guests have to say. If you're a new investor, you can learn from the mistakes that they've made, the experiences that they've gone through, and learn how they think. If you're an experienced investor, you could see strategies that they may be implementing that you haven't thought of using yourself. Now, secondly, you may have questions. And if you do, great. Put them in the comment section down below, and this way we can be sure to get those questions answered for you. And thirdly, there's a ton of information out there, but I found that most of it is relevant to the US, and it's hard to try and take out and extract and see what's relevant to your area. So all of the guests that I'll be interviewing are Canadian investors. So if you invest in Canada, if you're interested in investing in Canada, then this show is exactly what you need. Joining us today is Shane Unruh. Shane, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background in multifamily real estate investing? For sure. So yeah, so a little bit of background. Uh, grew up in northern Manitoba. Grew up in a Mennonite community, actually, so no TV, no radio, so a lot different upbringing. Um, farmed pretty much my whole life. And then when we, after high school, got into, we got into an operating business, got into um, real estate in, in the mobile home park space, actually, actually. So we'd read, I read an article in Forbes about all the perks of investing in mobile home parks and just kind of by faith that we were in a pretty small community there. And the one in our town went up for sale. We ended up, we got the books on it. And just for me, it was just like, it just clicked and, and made a ton of sense. Like I just right away kind of fell in love with real estate. Um, so we bought that park. We ended up buying another one after a tax auction. Pretty quickly realized you can't scale that business um, where we were at. You're either buying big parks that institutions buy or you're buying small parks that don't make a lot of sense to manage. So we started looking at multifamily. Um, I had some family in, in Edmonton. My wife was from Edmonton as well. And then it was right at the beginning of COVID. We, we decided to make the move. So we kind of lucked out there. We sold, sold our operating business kind of the week COVID came in and then we moved to Edmonton at the time when the market was a lot of people weren't in the market buying and started the company we have today. So right now in the last, I guess, since 2020, we have uh, 280 units. We currently rolled those into after about the first year, we rolled them into a limited partnership. And so we have we run like a fund model. So we bring in investors and buy a property and we have the property management company that manages it as well. So that's where we're at today. Wow, what an exponential growth. That's um, that's a lot in a pretty short amount of time, if you think about it. Um, I would say, like, I think most people would say that um, you've set up a pretty successful multifamily um, business, right? What what do you, in your opinion and your, 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 your experience, what do you think sets um, successful multifamily real estate investors apart from unsuccessful ones? Um, I think there, there's, there is kind of two sides to the business. There's the operating side of the actual asset and there's the investment side. And I think a lot of times people 
get pretty narrow sighted on one side of it. So they'll be like, oh, we're the, they just focus on the, the property side and they're not looking at it as an investment or how an investor might look at it. Um, and I do think both, both sides are, are very required. And then I think on the other side, you have a lot of people who will jump in and they're just doing it for the fees. So they're just trying to buy property and they don't really care how it's operated. And then that never works out long-term either. So I do think it, it makes a difference on both sides. And we've, we've, you know, we have kind of that experience of every level of it. So when we ran the, the mobile home parks, it was just me and my wife. We were doing everything. We, we collected the rents, you know, you, they were manually reading the waters every month. And it was a, when we first, sure, when we first took it over, it was a pretty rough tenant base. Um, and it was a big park. That was our first thing. And it was 69 pads. Um, so it was, you know, a lot of tenants that, and a lot of it was cash. Um, and so we can, we've learned, you know, you, you learn it from the ground up and pretty much every step through there we did, you know, even a couple of years ago, we were doing all the renovations ourselves, and then, uh, you know, the guy who runs our management company now, he started same thing. He's pretty much worked his way up and done every, every level of the business. So I do think it's important to understand the real estate side and, and on the investment side, you know, yeah, I, you have to look at it, how an investor would look at it, I guess, instead of how a, how an operator always looks at it. Yes. Yes. So it's that good balance of, uh, acquisition and like the efficiency of the assets that you've acquired, right? Making sure that you don't lose touch on either end. Right. Yeah. I think that's very important. And I think that happens, you know, it just inevitably happens a lot with bigger companies where, you know, you're, you start building out a structure that's based on fees and then it kind of just continues that way. And, and, uh, we do in-house management, we have our own management company. Um, I think that does play a big role in it because if you don't have the scale, it probably doesn't make sense. But when you do, you know, a property management company's mandates to make money, a, a, a fund's mandate is to make as much profit as they can. And they, they don't really go together very well. So I think if you do do that in-house, it, you know, if you have the scale and the means to do it, I think it, uh, it makes a big difference as well. I think that's one of our biggest assets on the investment side is that we manage it. And, you know, I think that helps a lot. Yeah. Cause then you both have the same goal, your goal sort of aligns so that you can manage it a lot more efficiently and keep those costs down. Right. Um, yeah. now with regards to the acquisition side of things, how do you go about finding and evaluating potential multifamily properties to invest in? Yeah. So we have a pretty strict criteria, what we look for. Um, real estate is a, is a relationship business. So it, it does make a difference, you know, the brokers, you know, on stuff. When I first moved to Edmonton, you know, we moved from a community of like 4,000 people and you move here and someone's like told me that like, it's a very small town, you know, everyone knows everyone and it's very small. And it really is that way. Like if you, you know, if you get in the industry, there's only for sure at, at you know, the hundred unit plus buildings, there's only so many people that are, that are buying those. And, but it, you know, it, it's how you, I, I think it has a lot to do with how you treat people in the industry too. If you're, if you're not retrading a lot and you're, you know, you're treating the brokers good, like they're just people. And, and it's, uh, we've made a lot of friendships in the industry. And so, yeah, we get sent a lot of stuff. Um, everyone kind of knows, like we were, like I said, it makes a big difference to give them the exact blueprint of what you want. So we say, you know, we're looking for wood frame walk up. This is the cap rate we can buy out. This is the financing we need to get. So they're not bringing us, you know, I'm not seeing a bunch of high rise stuff or a bunch of four unit buildings. They send us what they know we're going to be buyers on. 
and we try to get them an answer as quick as possible. We're not wasting time there. And it goes a long ways. I think just being efficient. Yeah, it's all about those those relationships and cultivating them, right? So um, that you you sort of you become top of of their priority list for anything that that matches your criteria for them to think, hey, let's send that over to Shane. You know, um, when you first got started, though, how were you going about um, finding these brokers and and building those relationships? Was were they coming from referrals? Were you sort of just googling and trying to find um, you know any broker that you possibly could? How did that work? Yeah, so we reached out. I mean, we did reach out to a lot of people. We had one connection with a a, mor- a mortgage broker out here, and he did connect us with a few people. We also benefited timing-wise. Like, we came to Edmonton r- right during the first two weeks to flatten the curve. Like, that was kind of the first lockdown. And so the first couple of deals we looked at, guys had actually left money on the table and walked away from, and there was no one buying. So... You know, in a hot market, the brokers have their list and it, it's harder to get in front of them. In in a market like that, it was kind of the opposite where like they were just thankful someone's coming and looking at the prop. You know, they, they wanted that that people and th- there was nothing trading right then. So we came in, you know, there wasn't a lot of competition. Interest rates were at an all time low. So it was kind of timing worked out very well for getting ahead of that line. And then once you closed on a couple properties, then they know that. And then as soon as you do, like, see, everyone in that industry is going to get the, going to see who closes on stuff. So we just had a guy called me from Calgary and a guy from Saskatoon this week because they had seen we closed on our last deal and they'll just pull your company number and, and get a hold of you. So once, you know, once the ball gets rolling, it, it, you know, the, the net gets a little bigger on who, who knows you're out there. But at the beginning, yeah, it was just when, before we moved, we had bought two smaller properties and I would just call and kind of give the same pitch. I'd say, look, we're, we own some mobile home parks in Manitoba. We're looking into moving into the market. Here's what we have for equity. Here's what we're looking to buy. And if you're pretty straightforward with them, again, I'm not, I wasn't at that point wasting their time and looking at hundred unit buildings. We were looking when we first, before we moved, we bought two smaller eight units and we were pretty strict on the criteria, what we needed and what kind of financing we were looking at. And I think that gives you a lot of credibility too. Yes. Yes. And, and most of those deals are when you're getting them from like brokers and stuff, they are off market deals, right? Not deals that are on the MLS. Yeah. A lot of the bigger stuff won't go on MLS because the people who are buying them aren't also aren't looking on MLS. So usually like, like I said, if you're buying a hundred unit property, that's in the 10 to $20 million range, you know, there's only, I don't, I don't know how big that list is in Edmonton, but the, the, let's say there's 20 people or 50 groups that would buy that. And then they all have their own criteria. So a lot of the big, big funds are, you know, they'll buy concrete and steel buildings. So they're not interested in this one. So, you know, each broker is going to have their list that they'll send it to. The odds of someone not picking up that deal. I mean, at some point they might list it, but generally, you know, the people who are going to buy it aren't going to be on the MLS if it's bigger product. Um, and the smaller stuff, I'm sure is the same way they'll send it to their list. And, but if you're a serious, you know, if, if you're looking for smaller stuff, I think you can get on, on the broker's short list too, and see it probably before it hits the market. And I mean, it just makes sense that as you, as you begin to scale the competition, so it sort of, it decreases, right? A lot of it falls away. So there's less people to compete with because there's less buyers that are at that level, right? That makes sense. Um, now tell me when, when you do get a deal that crosses your path, um, that makes that that's that you're sort of possibly interested in. How do you approach the negotiation side of, um, 
either the buying or even on the selling end of a multifamily property. Yeah. Well, I have barely been on the selling. We sold our first, we're just selling the two smaller buildings, but I'm, I'm usually on the buying side. Usually like on the last deal, what'll happen is they'll send it out. They'll send a brochure out and then they'll have a bid date. So they'll say, have your offer in by this date. And so, you know, and then they'll go to best and final and there might be a couple of people and they, they try to get the price up a little bit, but you know, once, once you have it under contract, I guess we've done it so many times now we kind of know, like we, we use uh, Canada ICI for the finance side. So they know, you know, they go to market right away and, and try to get, we usually always use CMHT dad on stuff. So they're trying to get approval there. Um, our lawyer knows what to do, but it's kind of just a process after that. But we, you know, we do our due diligence or getting building inspections and stuff like that. Um, generally at the, when you're buying little bigger properties too, it, I always find it, the nice part is, you know, for the most part, they're very, they're very sophisticated operators that are handing over everything. So you're getting every, they know they've sold lots of buildings. They're sending you all the stuff that, that you need. And it's a little different like that. I find on, on some of the smaller stuff, you know, if it's just a individual that owned it, it's always a little harder to get all the due diligence stuff, but yeah, it's, it's uh, not probably not a whole lot different than. Okay. Are you finding that, um, they, they always list uh, at an appropriate price or like you say, it's, it's bidding. So is it, is it sort of less negotiation that goes on and um, you, you just put in your sort of your best offer. And then if that's the highest offer, it gets accepted. Is that, is that how it works? Generally there won't like the last couple, I, I don't, there isn't even a price given it's you talk to the broker and he'll say, here's the guidance we gave them. And you have a pretty good idea, you know, um, where everyone's going to come in at. And my thought on this, I think is slightly different than a lot of people's fear is that, you know, if something's listed and you want to buy it at 150 a door, you know, the fear is what if the next lowest bids 130 and you come in at 150, you know, that's kind of what everyone fears. I always kind of do the reverse of that. And I, I look at it and I say, look, our financing works here. This is what we need to make our return. So if I bid 150, I have no control of what people bid under me. So, and we've gotten deals because I bid on the last one and it was something kind of silly. It was like, you know, $3,000 a door different. I, I bid higher than I thought I would. I'm like, let's just make sure we get this one. And, you know, someone was right there. So if you, I think a lot of people, that fear of missing that extra little bit and, and really, you know, on a $20 million deal, like a couple thousand dollars a door, just it, it usually won't make or If it's, if that's, what's breaking the deal, it usually won't matter. So we usually go in at kind of what our final, what this is what we're, we're wanting to pay. And, but you have some guidance on that. And then it's, yeah, it's what you're comfortable with. There isn't generally, it's not like they say, Hey, we're asking like some of them do They'll They'll kind of have a, a price range, but it's not usually like, Hey, here's the price, you know, per door exactly. And you can buy it for this probably once it goes past through the whole bidding process, then, then it does. But. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And um, at that level of, of, of real estate that you're buying, that, that big uh, of a property, there's a lot less of them than someone um, purchasing a residential property, right? Where they're okay with getting a lot of offers rejected. Um, so they'll put in like low ball offers, whereas with deals like that, it's more, um, you know, what would make the offer work and putting it in at that price, right? As opposed to just passing on it for for something that's seemingly insignificant if you take the whole deal into consideration. 
Um, now, you, like you mentioned, they, they're pretty good at giving everything that you need in order to effectively evaluate the deal um, so you can make sense of the numbers. Uh, but for people out there who are pretty new to multifamily, how, how do you go about determining the value of the multifamily property? If you could just roughly break that down for us. Yeah, well, um, for us, like for me, it, it starts and ends at, at really at financing. Like we have, so CMHC, uh, I'll try how to not get too complicated, but like they have a that they have a system they use to underwrite property that gives them the value they're willing to loan and they can care less what you pay for that property. So if I can, if I'm like, Hey, I really want this property. I'm going to pay $20 million for it. CMHC can come in and say, that's fine. We're seeing this building is worth 15 million. We're going to give you 85% of that. So if you want to pay 20, you make up that difference. For us, a lot of these deals, they, they do depend, they're leverage dependent. I mean, that's real estate. You need to use leverage effectively. So you need it to come in. For us, we need ideally to have the, we need to underwrite it so it comes up at CMHC's value and that's the value we want to pay. And then we can work on whatever leverage we want. But it, and it really screws a deal up if you're off on the value. So we know what they underwrite to. And so they put in, you know, appliance reserves and all these things. So you have to underwrite the same way and pretty much going in. And because we use Canada ICI and they do this full time, right? Um, they help on the underwriting side too, and to get us the value we need. But for us, it's financing a lot more than, than anything else. If that works out, um, you know, everything else you can, you can like the area and you can, you know, like the property long-term but it has to make sense on it. The value has to be very similar. So we can't buy like kind of the world we live in right now is we're buying in that five and a quarter cap rate. So commercial real estate opposed to residential. The, and what I don't like about it, whatever, you know, if you have three houses in a row that are the same, basically what the other two sold for is what you're going to get for yours. Commercial real estate's not the same. You can have the same three exact buildings sit side by side. If their income is different, you know, that that's all that drives it. So it's your net income divided by a cap rate. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of it. That's where all the money is made is, is you're dividing net income by cap rate. So if you can get a dollar of income, you make $17 of profit, right? Um, so for us, yeah, it has to, we buy at a five and a quarter cap. And that's usually where right now with interest rates where they are, that's, that's kind of what I think is happening in the market that sellers aren't wanting to come off that, but you know, to raise that at all, but yet interest rates are, are getting close to that number. So that either changes or, or stuff doesn't move as much in the market probably, but I don't know if that was too complicated or made sense. No, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and um, <clears throat> with regards to how much capital you, you guys are actually putting in and um, the term that you finance in it over, does that stay pretty standard? Um, or does that vary from property to property? And if so, what are the factors that sort of cause that to vary? Yeah, no, it would vary for sure. It kind of depends. Like, you know, when we first started out, we were using just a standard CMHC and that, that's 15% down. And But the nice part about that is you can amortize it for 40 years. So the way I always look at it is the longer you can amortize something, if you run a pro forma at 25 years and 40, um, the 40 year, you're going to get a lot more cash flow. So your debt service is higher. You get lots of cash flow. The 25 year, you pay more equity down. But almost everybody's model is that at year 10 or when you refinance, you pull equity out and put it into something else. So 
So why my whole thesis really is like, why would we pay the bank back all that money over the, those 10 years and have inflation just eat it away? Cause it's sitting in their debt. So even at 3% inflation in 10 years, the money that's out in there has, has devalued 30% when every year we could have pulled that out and gave it to our investors rather. So we like long, I like longer amortizations. Um, on, on now CMHC has a product and it's, it's on a point system. So it, you can go all the way to a 50 year M and you can put 5% down and there's trade-offs for that. So they're trying to keep affordable housing. So usually you have to put a certain number of units into that, into a rent cap, or you can, you can make the building more efficient. So the last building we bought it, it's at that age where it needs new boilers and everything. So that system, that program worked really good in that building. Um, you know, within the first two years, we'll change out basically everything mechanically, which will save us a ton of money on energy anyways. And we got to, take advantage of this really good loan program. Um, so I, yeah, the, the, the amount you're putting in is really dependent on the deal. Um, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, now you spoke about like doing your due diligence with regards to, um, uh, getting inspections done. And then of course, you know, making sure that everything would line up with regards to financing. Um, is there anything else, uh, that you do within this due diligence, due, due diligence process? Um, if so, what would that be? Here's a quick tip for you listeners out there. As a real estate investor, there's two things that you can focus on that will bring everything else together. The first thing is networking. Go out there and network with other like-minded investors. Look in your area, see what networking events there are and go and join them. If you're within the Edmonton area, by all means, find my contact info below. I'll hook you up with local events and you can make sure that you go and attend as many as possible, grow your network grow your net worth. The second thing I'd say is your power team. You'll come to leverage them quite often. You rely on them to make investing easier for you. They have the expertise that you don't need to have. So I'd make sure that I focus on building a strong power team. If you are in the Edmonton region, you're looking for an investor focused realtor, by all means, hit me up. I am licensed. I do have an investor list as well that I just send deals out to investors on my list. So if you are interested in being added to that as well, you can contact me below. I'll make sure to add you. Let's get back to it. Uh, you know what? Now, like area wise, we're, you know, we always want to know what the area is like. Um, we, I, you know, I try to stay away. From, I don't like downtown at all. Like the last property we bought's in, you know, it's in Riverbend, it's unreal neighbor. Like all my kids will go, we'll go walk around there. Cause it's just like a nice area. Um, there, there's a little bit of that knowing again, at, at this level, you pretty much, when a property comes up, there's, you know, who it comes from. And that makes a big difference if we're comfortable, like the last property we bought, we've already bought from them. So, you know, there's a couple things that can go, but it's, there's not going to be any, you know, we, we assume they're not huge surprises, but then there can be, we took it over and you know, we had to put $30,000 into the elevator in the first month because it just something blew in the elevator that, you know, so that you can do all the due diligence you want and, and stuff can happen. But on stuff like that, I mean, I'm sure you've seen guys do building inspection. They can miss stuff too. It's, you know, it's kind of how that works. Um, on the last one. Yeah, there was, a, it was actually, it had the aluminum wiring and they had to go in and what we, we were able to find that and we had to go in and do all the, they went and changed all the plugs and stuff we bought before we bought it. So there's lots of little stuff like that, that you can catch, but it, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's probably the same as, as buying the smaller stuff you're doing them. A lot of it's on the financing side and making sure that all of that checks out to the income and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? You want to have the finance in lockdown. And then with regards to inspections, there's only so much that you can find out. And then you obviously just have to plan for the unexpected, right? Um, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I know when we touched on initially, like separating uh, successful, you know, multifamily investors versus ones that aren't successful, um, could we dive into perhaps common mistakes that new multifamily real estate investors make that you've seen? Yeah, I would say one, I, I think kind of starting with an end goal in mind makes a huge difference. And 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 we had t- touched on this a little bit before we started, but if, if, you know, from day one, we had a really aggressive target where we were going to go. And what that did was allowed us, you know, if I came out here and said, look, in the next 10 years, I'm going to own 100 units, right? If that was the target, we probably wouldn't have one employee have came on board. And if we did, they wouldn't be a quality per- like you to attract people that are quality, which you need, you need a team. If you're going to do this at scale, I think you have to have a big enough target that everyone's dream can be in there. Like there's going to be room for someone to be a, you know, incredibly high level person in, in our organization. So I think that has to do with it. Um, one thing that like a lot of companies did that we tried to stay away from was it's very easy, I think, and, and we could probably be much bigger unit wise if we just went and bought every every small property for cheap. So there's a ton of stuff you can buy downtown for almost nothing. And there's a model there that people can do. But I think it gets increasingly hard to manage. And if you look at like a lot of our big competition did start in, in more rural spots and they still hold all those properties. To me, that is just a, a management night. Like, I don't understand how you can manage a portfolio of thousands of 20 unit buildings spread out in all these markets. So I think being pretty tactful on where you buy the properties and what they are. So kind of our thesis on that too, was we want, I would like to buy properties that maybe on their own, a big, bigger company wouldn't buy, but in a portfolio of a couple thousand would take them. So that's why we're in that now, what we look for is kind of in that hundred unit range. I'm not buying a bunch of 20 unit properties to hold because who, who will ever buy that on the other end? So I think you need, if, if the goal is to be big, which, which ours is, we want to scale it up. I think you need to, you know, you, you need to have that in mind when you're starting out because the management is what can vary you, I think so quickly. And it, I look at, you know, those, those, and even the smaller building, they're just, they're just very, very hard to manage. And it's for sure when they're spread out, like you're, you're making all these trips to little places and, so I think, uh, yeah, starting with the end in mind is, I guess, would be one thing that would make a big difference. That is great advice. I, I, I couldn't agree more, though. Um, I, I'm, I am interested, though, uh, when you first got started, did you go ahead and um, plan out like the organizational chart of what what the company, what the business would look like, um, you know, in the next couple of years? And then um, in addition to that, uh, if you don't mind briefly touching on how you scaled, like with regards to acquiring um, units, like how quickly you made those jumps up to buying, you know, a um, hundred unit buildings. Yep. Um, sorry, what was the first question? Oh, oh, the organizer. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we, and we have to go back and redo that all the time or look at that. So that's one thing though, where you can, you can learn a lot from, from other people too. So even uh, about a, it might be almost a year ago now, but me and my wife went down to Phoenix and we did a big 
course on scaling companies. And it's, you know, there's all the different breakpoints. And to know that in advance is things that, you know, a lot of people learn that 10 or 15 years in. One thing I've always been very cognitive of, and even when we set up the limited partnership, the way we did is I didn't want to get to a certain level and have to go back and restructure it. So that's what like we spend a lot of time on even today. It's like, I don't want to get to a billion in assets and have to go back and just change it all. You know, we want to make sure that at every step we're doing, we're putting the process in place. So I would say for a company our size, we put like a lot of weight on processes and stuff right now. And I'm not that guy. I, I could care less. My wife is and, and our, the guy on the operation side, Mason, he is, I'm, that's just not my personality. I'm not, you know, I'm all there for it, but I don't personally don't do it. Um, but, you know, putting the system and stuff in place. And the, the other thing that I think people mistake when I say, you know, to go out and say you have a big goal is cool. And you know, that's fine. But if I just said, hey, in the next six months, we're going to have 10,000 units and I don't show any pathway to get there. People are, aren't going to buy in. I was pretty clear, like when we moved inside the company, I'm like, look, by this year, we'll have, we want this amount of units and this amount in assets under management. And here's how we're going to do it. And you, you have that plan modeled out. And then once you knock out a few of the, you know, a few steps, it, it makes it very real for everyone too. Um, I, I can't remember what, oh, on the, on the scaling thing. So yeah, initially we had bought um, the two eight unit buildings and we bought those with some partners from back home. And that was kind of our first two before we moved here. And then when we moved here, we had owned and operated a gym for about five years and we had sold that. So we had some capital. The first thing we bought, it was um, a group of 27 townhomes. And it was kind of funny because we took it out. We bought that property and it was lumped in with a 46 unit building that was in St. Albert. They were together and we pieced this one off and bought it. And, you know, I think it was right during COVID. So they were really strict on not getting in units and stuff at that point. Um, so I think, I think on the rent roll, I don't know, there was one or two vacant and then we took it over and there were seven, which on 27 units is a huge, you know, that's 30 some percent of your units. So at that time, I mean, and we've done this lots throughout our kind of throughout our life, but we, you know, I have two, two boys, um, two young boys as well, but we basically lived at those properties. So we would go there, set our kids up in a playbook and, and we were renovating the units and everything kind of there. So, you know, me and my wife and we, we would get family and, and whatever, and we kind of renovated those. And then, um, I had, I think I posted something actually on Instagram or something of, of, of the sign of the property and someone reached out from back home. I was like, Hey, if, you know, if you ever want to sell your parks, let me know. And so we ended up selling those and then that gave us more capital. And the next property we bought was the 46 unit that was attached to that. So that was pretty much, you know, you almost doubled the amount we had. And then up to that point, like people could kind of see what we're doing. And, and that's when we had interest in invest people wanting to come in. Um, I didn't want to do it without the proper setup though. Cause I think that too is a something where some people might get in trouble is if you just take a bunch of notes or what, however that looks to get your first couple of deals done at some point, you need to restructure that or else you're just going to end up with a bunch of notes all over the place, you know, that you owe people all this money and it's, it's really unclear how it all works. So we, we didn't really take on capital until after we had those two properties and we were going to buy the next one. We found a really good one. It was 96 units. Um, and we had some people waiting to invest. Then we rolled all the properties into a, to a limited partnership, which is where, what our fund is today. And we bought the 96 units 
And then we spent a lot of time because we were at we were at 169 units. Um, and then we were at one of those points too, where we, you know, there was a lot of process stuff had to get put in so we could manage it and, and operate that. So we spent kind of the next year really dialing in on the management side of things and our advertising. And, you know, there's a lot to, to make sure we had under, we didn't want to take on another property right away and, and get ahead of our skis type of thing. So we ran, ran those three. And then we, we just bought 111 units here in November. Um, so that was our next asset. And now we're, you know, currently we're raising for another, we'll be hopefully have another one underway soon here. So that's kind of the growth up till today. And we want to be, we're about halfway to where we want to be. So by the end of 2024, we kind of had set a target of where we want to be and we're exactly halfway there. So we're where we need to be. And that just speaks to what you touched on initially was um, finding that balance of not just going all in on the acquisition side and um, leaving everything else somewhat neglected, right? You acquiring and you making sure that everything's operating and running efficiently and then acquire more and then keep growing that way um, so that you can manage the growth and the operation, um, you know, simultaneously. And of course, it, it, it would lean between the two uh, when it would need like at this point, you guys were stabilizing things. And then, of course, uh, looking to acquire then. By the way, speaking of the Riverbend property, I, I was fortunate enough to uh, uh, have a look at that one. And beautiful area, uh, amazing area, Riverbend. Um, and it's a, it's a great property. So uh, I think that was that was a, a great acquisition. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I want to I want to actually while you were while you were laying this all out, though, I just had a, I had something pop up in my mind was. With regards to um, your investors, how 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 are you structuring? Because you said you sort of rolled everything into like a, a limited corporation. Um, when investors come in, are they investing on that particular property, or would it be investing on the whole uh, portfolio? Yep. No. So we structured it. it it's basically like a fund. Um, I didn't want to, and and I don't can't see us really ever doing it on a per property basis. The tough part there is like now we can say, look, here's what a portfolio does. Here's the returns we're getting. If we bring a new property in, you know, even if it doesn't perform the first couple of months, because it might not, you know, you, you have a buffer of that fund. Um, and then the other nice part is if you do it on a single asset, like if you buy, a, you know, one asset and, and the financing comes up at five years, you know, what if what if that exact property came up right peak interest rate? You, you know, you maybe had it under. A two percent interest now at six. If you have them staggered, if you just continue to buy through all cycles, you're always turning up. So maybe one gets high interest rates, one gets low interest rates. You know, you hit a bad cycle or you take over a property. Like if we bought those townhomes and that was the only thing, which it was at the time, but like now it's in a fund. And if you bought it in, you know, a bunch half of them are empty, or half the people move out, or the roofs all, you know, if whatever happens, those specific investors that were in that one are kind of getting a bad deal. Whereas everyone else might be like, Oh, our property's cash flowing. Great. This way the risk is spread out and even areas, areas can change. And so I think if you, if you have the fund model, I like it a lot better that way. The risk is more spread out. Yeah. I completely agree though. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of, uh, like you say, spreading the risk out, spreading the reward out. Um, my one thought is how are you, are you guys sort of, um, before, like before intaking any new uh, capital, are you waiting to the point where you're ready to acquire an additional property just so that 
people's like the distribution of the people that are already in the fund we don't sort of dilute that how does that work yeah yeah so we're yeah we're when we bring investors in it is for a like to buy a property we're not we're not diluting the shares and just selling shares all the time um and kind of like the goal with this fund and why we set the number of kind of 2020 the end of 2024 i think that's the only time because the buying phase is always the part where like you're always going to make more money when you just sit and hold when you're buying stuff you like like we we did raise some capital. We were going to buy a property and the deal didn't work out. And then you're holding that capital and all that happens throughout the first couple of years. Um, so that's kind of our plan is in the next two years, we'll probably close off this fund and we'll start a new one. And, uh, so then this one will stop taking capital in and we'll stop buying inside of this fund. So that that's the other thing that gets hard is like, if you ran a fund, let's say an open fund for 10 years, you're, you are constantly reevaluating the share price. And if you're doing that in over 10 years, let's say it's harder to do because it's like, if you have a really bad time, the share price goes down. And if you had to, if you're selling shares to buy property at that time, and then all of a sudden the price goes way up or vice versa, you might sell shares here and it goes down. So it it gets, we don't, you know, that way we're not for the next 10 years having to constantly reevaluate the price to, to buy and sell. So it'll be slightly different if how we set up our next fund will be different than this one too, but that's how. Okay. So just keep, keep a couple of properties in a fund so that you somewhat spread out the risk. And then once it's at a decent amount, sort of close that up and then move on to the next one. Yeah. And the other thing that changes is like, even now, like when we started buying in this fund, you know, we were buying it at sub two interest rates. So the cash flow we were getting and what works, you know, what we're expecting that that looks totally different now at four and a half. And I don't know what that's going to look again, or you could, you know, we'll probably have an opportunity fund at some time, which is more like we don't pay the cash flow out, it gets reinvested into properties. And you can do a lot of different stuff in different funds, but to start mixing where you have a really high cash flow fund, and now we start adding properties in high interest rates that aren't, you know, you don't want to do that forever either. You want to kind of a mix of it. So, yeah. yeah. And then, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, now, just going back to... Um, you, you, you spoke about the management side of things, management and the maintenance. You guys keep this in-house. Um, and of course, you you had the end goal in mind uh, when you first started out. When do you recommend people make that switch? Because obviously, like you mentioned, when you initially get in started, it is a little harder. Um, when did you guys make that switch? And when do you recommend people make that switch between using a property management company and having your own, essentially? Yeah. I think that's might even be more than, than me having an exact number. It might be on dependent on the person. Like it realistically, like if you're a professional or a full-time doing something, you're never going to want to do that. Like that's just, you never, it's never exciting to get a call at three in the morning that the sewer's backed up or those aren't things that, but I also don't know if those people should own the real estate outright anyway, you know, if you're not going to do it full-time. Um, like we transitioned pretty quick. We had bought the one property when we bought the second one, there's a management company and it's just, you're just, we just weren't aligned at, right away. We knew we we're like, Hey, we, we can't do this. So we hired our own person and did it. Um, but yeah, if you don't want the headache, like everyone's different. Like I said, if you run a, if you're at a full-time job and this isn't ever going to be your full-time job, then, then don't do the management probably ever because, you know, just lose that extra bit of money and, and pay someone because it's not going to be worth the headache. If it is going to be the full-time thing, then then I guess the sooner the better. You know, the sooner you can take over and learn the business, the better. But 
I just you have to people have to be cognizant if you are working at a job and you you, you have to be able to take those calls pretty much 24 hours a day right if there's something leaking you can't leave it till you're done work to, to answer the call so i guess it's based a little bit more on lifestyle i think absolutely yeah and i i was lucky enough to um to be there when uh, mason spoke about the like how you guys actually manage things and how you guys um have incorporated technology to also make your management a whole lot more efficient so I think there, there are easier ways or processes to put in place to assist on, on that management side if you are doing that yourself. Um, now going, going, going to, you know, back to acquiring properties, what sort of strategies are you using to increase the value of uh, your multifamily properties? Because like you mentioned, it's different to residential where you look in the comparables, what other properties have sold for. This is more on how the property performs itself. Um, what strategies do you guys like use it with regards to increasing the value of the property? Yeah. So our model, like I, I call it stabilized value add. So some guys like the value add thing where you go in and you, you do all this renovation. There's to me, it's just, there's a lot of risk there. You're risking timing or all these things. So what we like to do is, like I said, day one, we want to go in with, with the value. We can get full leverage. And essentially our model would be to skip one refinance. So instead of refinancing in two or three years, we're able to, to play it out and get just a ton of extra cash flow. So we, if we can buy a property like the one you visited, you know, I think they had spent $5 million on the outside. The decks are all redone. They're all concrete. Now the roof was redone. Um, a lot of the common area. So the, the things they did all the stuff that the, the big lifting and now the stuff we can go in and do is the unit renovations, which directly um, increases the NOI. Like if you have a, you know, a, a newly renovated unit now versus an old one, you're getting a hundred dollars, 150 more for rent. So it's essentially flipping, but just done at scale and the return because it's divided by a cap rate is just way higher. So you don't need the big lift that, that you need on smaller properties. Like if you get rents up, you know, 30 bucks a year for 10 years, there's, and, and you're dividing that by a cap rate, there's a huge amount of value added there, but we're doing it on the, yeah, generally our, it's on the efficiency side too, like how fast you can turn those units over. That all makes a big difference, how little vacancy you have. And then, but we're doing, it's mostly on unit renovations. Now this summer we'll start doing on the mechanical side of things. Um, in a lot of the properties, we're going to upgrade that. Just energy costs are up so high. It makes sense to do it. We go in, it's always, we always put in new signage. So we're doing a really nice sign at that property. You'll see, we'll put it in this summer. We took over in winter, so we couldn't, but we always do nice signage with landscaping around it it's always funny to me when people are buying like this massive thing and they have this crappy little sign up you know that like the 20 dollars sign on a huge building so for us that's our brand and that that's everything so we we always do big you know signage and um, those are the big things make sure it's you know clean and and on the maintenance side everything's taken care of really quickly and, and people want to stay so with regards to um uh, like renovating the units itself are you waiting until people move out of the units and then renovating the units before um putting new tenants in that sort of thing yeah 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 we're not one of the groups that goes and kicks people out and and does, or, or tries to do it that's not i have no interest in that and then we're not doing we're not see we don't have that timeline of like hey in in 12 months we have to refinance this to get rents up that's not our model so we put a lot of emphasis on keeping people happy and in the building um, we have a tenant equity program, which I think we're probably the only company that does. 
that literally pays you to, you know, the more, the longer you stay, the more money you make. Um, so we do things like that. We want tenants to stay and be happy. Um, and then as they move out is when you can, you know, that's when we go in and renovate the unit. You should do a full reno and then you get new people in and most of the buildings, we don't have to go in and it's, it, we're not, like I said, we're not buying stuff at a hundred a door or something that that has a really bad tenant base. So if it has a good tenant base, there's no reason to have those people move out. So. Yeah. You already buying it with your ideal tenant profile there. Um, do you mind touching on that um, tenant equity program that you have? Yeah, yeah, and all your all your uh, fans can steal it from me. We uh, <laughs> yeah, so we I started looking at it like from the investment side of things. Our the biggest cost is always going to be turnover. So across the industry, that's about thirty percent. Thirty percent of people turning over every year. Now, on its face, it's like ah, oh, you got the vacancy, but in reality, you have all the soft costs. You have to go even if that unit's perfect. You know, you do have to go in, you clean it, you do a move out inspection. Then you have to you have to take the pictures. You have to advertise it, which you're paying for. You have to send someone there to show the unit multiple times. You have to do a credit check to make sure someone. Then you do a move-in inspection, and you have all these moving that costs you thousands of dollars every time a unit goes empty. And even if you don't do the rentals, if you do the rentals, it costs you fifteen thousand dollars, right? If you can just lower that number a little bit, you make a ton of money. So what we've seen, and this is kind of the benefit of building our own management company is when we have a problem, we would always look, how would we solve it before we look at how the industry does it? Everyone in the industry today goes and front loads incentives. So it's like, hey, come to our building, we'll give you $1,000 or we'll give you this. I said, what if we do the opposite and the people never move out? So we, we started the program, we started it in January. So it's anyone who, who signed, every time you sign a lease, a certain amount of money goes into the equity builder program. That money so it increases every year and it's on a sliding scale. So if you move out after year two, you're only eligible to take out, I think it's 25% year three, 50, 75, and then a hundred at year four. So the goal is to keep people, the average sentence two and a half years to get them to stay till four. If you stay four years, you're walking out with like $2,500, let's say. So you imagine a student going to school, you're like, Hey, instead of jumping ship every year to get an incentive, when you move, just to stay for the four years, you're getting a couple grand when you leave. The building we just took over, there's a 34-year tenant. You know, if she had been in the program the whole time, she's, she's got a lot of cash sitting there. So the idea is, for us, it's obviously on the investment side, it makes a lot of sense. But also just on a, on a personal side, like we're in a place right now where the average Canadian is $200 away from insolvency, right? They're like, like a huge percent of people are, are using a credit card to pay for the groceries right now. The rents and all that stuff is going up. And it, it the ability to save money is increasingly it's getting harder and harder. This is something where it's like the same reason I love investing in real estate is it's illiquid. I can't go pull the money out tomorrow and spend it. And that's the same with this. It's like, Hey, you know, you're not putting anything in for this. You're just, you're staying where you are. We're happy. You're a good tenant. And, and we're, we're, we're going to, you know, essentially you're saving this money staying with us and it gives people ability to hopefully, you know, better their lives. And you don't have to move out to take it at year four. If you're in a pinch, you know, you can, you can take that money out and the program resets, but it's not incentivizing you to leave either. The idea is that you stay and, and you just build equity as you stay. So I think too, it, it helps with, you know, it'll take a, a few years till people see that money in that account, but it also is like, we are on the same team, you know, you keep up the property, we're doing our part. It's like a, you know, everyone's kind of in the same, same boat and I think it'll help a lot of people so I love that I love that Shane that is a that is an 
Awesome idea. Wow. It's definitely a first. I've never heard of this before. Um, are, are you guys doing it like with regards to your different properties? Are you doing it on a, a rental percentage? Is it like just sort of a fixed small amount on each month? It's a, it's a set amount right now. Um, it's, it's just a set amount. You get X amount. It's not based on a percent. So we look at it like it really doesn't matter if someone's paying 900 or paying 2000, the cost of them moving is the same, right? For us to go in and do it, it, it doesn't change a lot if it's one bedroom or two bedroom. So we just across the board, it's, it's a set of dollar amount that we think is fair. It makes sense. And like I said, it, it helps us. It helps them a lot. And like, you'll get people that'll move for a free month rent, you know? And I'm like, man, there's no way you're paying that cost of moving to, for a thousand bucks, but people do jump ship for, for those type of things. And this way it's, I think there, yeah, it, there's equity in there. Like I, I think we're becoming increasingly a renter nation. I personally rent my house. I don't, you know, I don't have any plans to buy a house. So I think that if people can live somewhere and have the benefits, the only argument to renting is you don't build equity. You're throwing your money away if that argument's gone slightly and the, the better the program works, the, the more we'll do with it. There's, there's some like other stuff I have an idea for that we can do with it. That'll, that'll benefit it a lot too. So we'll see. Wow. Um, that is, that is very innovative. And I think that's, I mean, I don't, I don't see why that wouldn't take traction and why it wouldn't work as a win-win for both you as you know, the, the property management company and, the tenant themselves, right? Um, so I just wanna, well, firstly, everything up to this point is gold. Like I wish we could just keep going. I know, I know um, you have to leave soon, but um, I've recently implemented like a fun new segment into the show and you are currently the first guest to give this a try. So absolutely no pressure whatsoever. Um, <laughs> so Shane, let's imagine that you've just stumbled across like a time machine and it allows you to travel back and forth in time. You can't change anything, but you can give and receive advice from your younger and older self. So first, let's um, let's go back in time. If you were to meet your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give your younger self, knowing the knowledge that you know now? You know what? I would I would probably I would probably start in real estate sooner. I think um, it is time in the market that makes a big difference and. Um, I think the biggest problem is the vehicle you're in has to scale. So that was the problem with the operating company. We had a gym. It just, there was no room to scale that. So we kind of, we did it for five years and we did learn a lot. So that's not like I regret anything we've ever done, but it's like, there was five years there where if you were in a vehicle that could scale, it would look a lot different. So I think, yeah, starting, get into something that, that has that room to scale a little sooner would probably be the advice. Yeah, that's that's smart because you could put in the exact same amount of effort and time, but if your vehicle's more efficient, you're gonna get a lot further, right? Um, I love that. Now let's jump ahead to your 80th birthday. What advice do you think your future self would give you at your current age? Oh, let's see. I don't know. I assume I assume it would be something very similar because I, I, I think what's gonna happen is is we're going to get to a thousand units and the distance from a thousand to, if this is business advice solely, I think if it goes from a thousand to 10,000, you know, I think that looks a lot different than how it got us from here to a thousand. And I think, you know, I'd come back and say like, you know, why, why you just were thinking too small here. Like now we're looking at a hundred unit properties of it. Why didn't we start looking at a thousand and, and figure out how to, 
to bridge that gap. I think that's probably, if I'm the same person I am now, it's probably that I should have went bigger sooner, at, hopefully at least. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's definitely not exclusive to business, but um, I don't mind it being answered either way. Uh, I think it's uh, it's just intriguing to think to think of it from that angle, looking back, or you know what I mean. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think yeah. oftentimes we're thinking too small when we could be thinking thinking bigger, right? The limitations that we set are most of the time mentally. Um, yeah. So I think that's well, sage I advice. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and on the personal side, I, I think of that similar question all the time, actually. I, I, the, the idea of how, I think all the time of how, you know, 100 years from now, you know, or, or 200 years, you're gone, your, your legacy's gone. So I always think of that when, when how you're, you know, I, I try to be a huge part of my kid's life and, yeah. and, and stuff like that. I, I always try to think forward and, and reflect back. And, and I, I, the majority of my mentors are much older than me. And they give me a lot of good advice on that too. So I think that's very smart, very wise. I think it's, in my opinion, at least it's the, the best way to go about life and minimizing those regrets is constantly thinking ahead so that you can be present and use your time that you using like right now, more efficiently on things that matter and finding that good balance between, you know, your personal life, your family life, and then building for the future as well. Um, and getting that fulfillment too. Um, Shane, um, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to bring us this value. I know you're a busy guy. You have a lot on the go. I mean, it's pre pretty evident. And I know we've sort of just hit the like the tip of the iceberg on like the knowledge that you have to offer. Um, I definitely hope we could do this sometime in the future again. This has been really fun, super informative for me personally. So I can just imagine for everyone else out there listening. Um, I'm sure they found uh, value in this episode. Uh, just before we leave, Shane, if anyone else has been listening and they're like, hey, um, I'm interested in, you know, perhaps getting in on on one of these funds with uh, Shane going forward, um, or if they just want to follow along your journey because it's so inspiring, where could people find you? Where can they reach you? Yeah, so on the fund side, uh, it's pretty much excess asset management and you can find it anywhere. So excessassetmanagement.com. Um, and then you just click on the, there's a investor side. Um, if you go on that side, it, it shows our properties and it talks about what we do. Um, social media, Instagram's the one I like the best. I'm always like, if you, if you message me on either the excess asset management one, or we did just start, uh, I started more of a personal brand. So it's scaling up with Shane. Um, you can find me there if you just put in Shane under or scaling up with Shane. Um, and we're going to have a podcast. I, I, I get a lot of, I love hearing people's business stories and I've met a lot of cool people kind of in the last couple of years. And so just me having them on and, and learning about their business and what helped them scale and, and stuff like that. So that we're going to be at the first uh, seasons coming out soon on there. So if you go to scaling up with Shane, that's probably the easiest place to get hold of me. And we, the first episode is going to be, a, you know, half hour version of the story. I told you at the beginning, kind of how we went from where we were to where we are today. So yeah, those two places. And yeah, so either accessassetmanagement.com or, or scaling up with Shane, you'll find us either one there. And uh, yeah, I love, I love having conversations with people. And so you can always, I'm a pretty accessible guy. So perfect. Well, I'll make sure to leave all of Shane's info in the description. Uh, so people can have a quick, easy way to, to, um, you know, find you. Um, I'm definitely going to keep a lookout for 
for that first episode. I, I am, you've piqued my interest. So, uh, I mean, I've somewhat followed your journey uh, thus far, but I think I'm going to follow it a little closer. <laughs> um, so Good. yeah, thank you, Shane. I really appreciate you taking the time out today. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to Building Wealth Through Real Estate. If you're interested in learning tips from an investor and home inspector's unique point of view, then you definitely want to check out the interview with Matt Bordian. This is your host, Al Ray Noble, signing off.